How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We're taking a cultural turn at the Plastic Podcasts today. Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum, stands proudly on Custom House Key in Dublin and tells the story of Irish migration throughout the ages. Founded by Neville Isdell in 2016, it's been visited by over three quarters of a million people in that time and has won the award of Europe's leading tourist attraction for an unprecedented two years running in 2019 and 2020 at the World Travel Awards. Nathan Mannion is its senior curator, and clearly COVID has affected his line of work as well as everyone else's. So the first question I need to ask him is, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Doug. Thanks. Uh, a little bit cold here today in Dublin, but you know we're we're quite upbeat and quite happy to have the doors of the museum open again. When we're talking, it's the uh, the ninth of December. So you opened when? So we reopened on the first. And uh, how's the response of the public been to like just getting back into museums? Oh, I think it's been fantastic. I think um, a lot of people have felt that that a little bit of an absence in their lives. They've been desperate to go and attend on-site events to see face-to-face and to engage with the exhibitions and the content that we have downstairs. Um, it was a little slow the first day, but from since then, it's it's really started to grow. So we're very pleased at the minute. For those of our listeners who've been unfortunate enough not to visit Epic, um, how would you how, how would you describe it to, to, to somebody? Yeah, so Epic is Ireland's Emigration Museum, the first and only one in the country. Um, it opened just over four years ago in May 2016. Um, and so really what it does is it tells the stories of the 10 million people that have left Ireland from the 6th century to the present day and the 70 million strong Irish diaspora around the world, so those of Irish descent that live all across the world. So it looks at that how those people left Ireland, the means by which they left. Um, it looks at why the push and pull factors that caused so many people to leave this little island in the North Atlantic. Um, it looks at then the influence that they've had in a whole range of different areas and fields from sports to science to acting, storytelling and music. And then it looks at modern connections. So how do we connect and communicate from Ireland with that diaspora? How has that diaspora in turn changed how we perceive Ireland and our Irishness? And what does it mean moving into the future? What was the impetus behind uh, founding it? Yeah, so it's actually quite an interesting story. And it takes us all the way back to the depths of the recession um, in 2013 in Ireland. Um, Times were quite bleak. Money was even scarcer. And the Irish government had the idea that it wanted to organise an annual celebration called The Gathering, which you may be familiar with, where they basically invite everybody of Irish ancestry that they could track down through a big kind of reverse genealogy project to come to Ireland throughout the year um, for a big celebration and to reconnect with villages, towns all over the country um, that they could trace some of their ancestors back to. It was a great success um, and from that it really we really started to see that the Irish diaspora there was a real longing for a connection with Ireland and a place within Ireland where they could actually engage with their history and their heritage. Um, from that as well, Ireland appointed its first Minister of State for the diaspora. It started to put together a diaspora policy at the Department of Foreign Affairs, which had never done before. It started to take the diaspora seriously. And one of the ideas that they saw then was that they should have a cultural site um, within Ireland where they could come, you know. Um, lots of different things went on. They had no money to put forward to the proposal. It was a great one. The government would recognise a successful tender for the designation of Ireland's official diasporic centre or cultural centre. Um, lots of different bids came in from all over the, the island. Um, 
but it, with with the little funding available, they actually ended up scrapping the scheme, which was which was quite disappointing. Um, but one of the ones that went through was was what would later become Epic, um, by a, a philanthropist called Neville Isdale. So Neville would be the founder of Epic, um, and an Irish emigrant himself from County Down. He spent most of his life living all over the world. Um, I think at 151 countries last count, and the reason for that is because he became chairman and CEO of Coca Cola for a few years. So. That involved quite a bit of travel, as you could imagine. Um, but Neville, Neville stepped up and he put his own money in, invested it in Epic, spent nearly over 15 million euros um, out of his own pocket to create the museum, which is a not-for-profit. So there isn't any dividends being paid out or any shares or anything like that. The only money that the museum makes goes back into it. Um, and then we had the good fortune to open in 2016. So since then, um, We've been welcoming people through the doors um, and now more recently also online. And when did you get involved? So actually when I went in a couple of weeks before Epic officially opened. So when I walked in, the first thing I had to do was stick on a high-vis jacket and a hard hat and walk through as the exhibitions were being fitted out and designed. So that was quite fun um, and a great benefit to me now later on having um, worked as creator of the museum to see how everything works, to see the, the concepts behind it and to take over um, from the original design team and the academic panel that create most of the content in the museum. So uh, having enhanced and amended a lot of that content since um, under my own stewardship, it, it was, I think, really important to be there at the beginning. And it's an unusual thing in many ways, isn't it? Because most museums um, will, 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 will concentrate on what's come into a country. Um, if you look at um, you know, national museums or natural history museums and so forth, they're, they're, they're very much a, a celebration of what the what the country's accumulated. And yet, with with Epic, it's it's in the opposite direction in many ways. Yeah. So as I said, Epic is the Irish Immigration Museum. So our, our focus is primarily on departures from Ireland and the experiences of Irish people and their descendants around the world. Um, that said, we do take a, a broader view of migration as well as the, sort of the timeless movement of people around the world, sort of a global, a global phenomena. So we do look at inward migration into Ireland now. It wasn't initially part of the design of the museum, but over the last couple of years, it has been something we've been taking into account more and more. Um, we're also a member of um, the Global Migration Museums Network. So this is a body of museums all over the world that look at immigration, they look at emigration, they look at both, um, all sorts of different things for, uh, from 50 different countries at the moment. So yeah, it is a little bit different. We're not, we're not unique. Um, in that sense, there are a number of other emigration museums around Europe and the world. So places like Germany, um, there's one, there's another one in Italy. We're the only one in Ireland at the moment as well. Um, and in the UK, there are there are there's a migration museum in London as well, and but they look at kind of migration in its totality, so both, both the inward and outward migration of people um, to the island. You got what some twenty rooms there? Yeah, so there's twenty galleries um, in the kind of long-term exhibitions at the museum at the moment, and then we would have uh, two temporary two kind of half temporary exhibition vaults as well. So for anyone who hasn't been to Epic, it's even architecturally it's quite an interesting space. It's a uh, it's an old bonded warehouse. It's over two hundred years old. It's right in the heart of the Dublin Docklands. And the museum is nearly entirely based in the vaults underneath. So they're old wine and whiskey vaults. Um, upstairs was for dry goods like tea and tobacco. And so within the kind of very atmospheric vaults of the building yeah, is the 20 galleries um, that make up Epic. And uh, you've also got a genealogy 
um, aspect to it. Yes. So one of the last things you'll see in Epic when you come through is the a more recent exhibition that we installed called Power of a Name, which tracks um, Irish surnames around the world. So visitors both to the museum and through our website can come on. They can upload the last known emigrant um, in their family that left Ireland, their name, their detail, the year they left, if they were aware of it, where they went to. And then the, the surname will will appear on an exhibition downstairs. Um, it's, a, it's a live exhibition. It's always being updated. So it'll also give you little statistics like you're the 17th Finnegan to come from Maryland in the US, for example, and so on. And it creates a kind of word cloud. The larger the name, the more people of that um, heritage that have, that have entered in their name. Um, and then upstairs in the museum, um, at the back of our, our gift store is our is the Irish Family History Centre. So it's our on-site genealogy partners. Um, they will provide on-site consultations for people who want to further their own genealogical research. Um, you can come in at any level. So you can walk in the door. You might know anything other than your granny's name and they'll take it from there. Or you might be, you know, you might be fairly far along the process and you may have hit a brick wall somewhere and you're trying to find that fourth or fifth generation ancestor that you just can't quite pin down and they'll help you out there. Um, yeah, and they've been involved in some pretty high profile genealogy projects over the years as well. I think they tracked Tom Cruise's ancestry uh, back to the 12th century, to the Normans in Ireland. But you tell me they didn't make another film of it. No, but you know the title, he, he comes from aristocratic lineage and the title that his ancestors held in Henry Wexford was the Barons of Hollywood. So you couldn't make it up really. And also um, Joe Biden, I believe. Yes. So more recently, they've been involved in the Irish family trees for President Barack Obama and more recently then um, President-elect Joe Biden. Um, he, when he visited Ireland in 2016 as part of an official kind of state visit, they presented the, his family lineage and his family tree to him at the U.S. Ambassador's residence in Phoenix Park. And uh, his entire extended family were actually present. So there was quite a number of them there. Um, and then, let alone were they privileged enough to, to present his family tree to him, they were also taken basically as part of the entourage for three days to counties Mayo and counties Louth where his roots um, lie. So the Blewett family in, in Ballina and County Mayo and then to the uh, to County Loud up near Carlingford as well where the Flanagan side of his family um, originate. Barr JFK, he's the, he's, he's the only the second Irish Catholic US president to be elected. So it is um, quite special. I think he was actually, I think he, he commented on um, being, being after his roots were shared with him, that uh, uh, he's waited his whole life um, for this. So you can see the kind of the importance. It's a, a direct quote, I think, from he waited his whole life for this to have his Irish family tree shown to him and all his grandeur. Wow. Wow. Thinking of the genealogy project, I mean, has there been a, an upswing in, um, in, in, in inquiries from, from, from the, the, uh, the British diaspora, the, the Irish diaspora in Britain, rather, um, since the advent of Brexit? Yes. So I, I would say definitely that's the case. And we found even before the museum had to close for a few for a period beginning in March earlier this year, and we had a lot of visitors from the UK. It's one of the biggest groups of visitors to the museum as well, are people coming from Britain. Um, we found the Genealogy Centre um, had noticed as well a bit a big uptake in inquiries, people looking to find their Irish roots, looking for to to kind of verify the grandparents, to verify great grandparents and further afield. Um, 
which may be related to Brexit. It could be that they're looking for, you know, that Irish passport to, so they can remain an EU citizen. Um, but I think it was more than that as well. A lot of them were also looking to potentially make lives in Ireland. They were looking at moving here as well. And they were trying to, to kind of find where, where the family lay and where they should be kind of moving to. A big, a big decision for anybody. Um, but we've also, we've also been quite popular because even though both ourselves in the centre have closed, they've been doing online consultations now instead. So people have been booking in and chatting with one of the genealogists um, over Zoom or whatever it might be. Um, and I think a lot of people have taken that as a project as well during lockdown, you know, putting off the family tree for a while. I think, you know, you're stuck at home, nodding with conversations, particularly coming up to things like Christmas as well. It's, you know, they're lovely gifts to be able to present to older family members and just to get that information down on paper, because I think a lot of people put it off, you know, and then next thing you know, you know, you're the oldest member of the family and all that kind of like familial memory is gone. So it's quite important. But there's a lot of problems, aren't there, in, in, in people trying to find their, 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 their roots in Ireland because of, say, you know, fires in Dublin and, and, and things like that. You know, the, um, the, the, the records aren't necessarily completely, uh, completely available, are they? Yeah, so it's one of the, one of the big moments, in, I suppose, in, in any the Irish historical record, one of the biggest absences is the, during the Irish Civil War, the four courts, um, which held records, administrative records from... Um, going back as far as the 12th century were destroyed um, only mere fragments of them survived and since then a lot of genealogists and historians have tried to piece together uh, part of what was there from copies that were made elsewhere stored stored in other parts of the world um, even recently they've started to scan some of the like burnt pieces of paper that basically descended on Dublin after it was bombed it rained you know centuries of records um, some of them which were luckily saved and they've started to try scan digitize and piece them back together so there's little bits of information still coming out even today um, but one of the great things as well is places like the Irish Family History Centre and elsewhere have done a lot of work to digitize existing records so like church records um, that show baptisms marriages deaths and so on census records that give you a little bit of an idea um, land valuation taxes wills, everything that you could freely imagine. They've been trying to gather these from organizations like you know, the, the Catholic Church in Ireland, the Church of Ireland, going to government record offices in the UK and in the United States and trying to piece together these little stories. And that's the kind of bedrock for a lot of kind of family histories. So without that work, um, <clears throat> it really wouldn't have happened. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. From the institutional to the personal. Having talked about the founding of Epic with Nathan Mannion, I wanted to know more about his own family background. I must admit, I got more than I was expecting. Yeah, so I suppose like many people um, on my father's side, my my grandparents would have left Ireland as emigrants um, when they were quite young themselves. Um, my grandfather was originally from Connemara. Um, you couldn't get a more remote part of the world, to be honest. Um, having visited many times, it it's a little peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic on three sides. Um, there's one road heading down to it, and apparently everyone else on that little peninsula is related to me in some way. So that was that was quite nice to see. Um, and then my grandmother is from County Carlos, so she's from just outside Carlow Town, and they both emigrated to Britain. Um, when they were quite young, the ages of about 17 and 16 years of age. They didn't know each other. Um, they met 
uh, while my grandfather was working in construction, he was in the Irish Navy. And while my grandmother would have been working with the NHS as a nurse, um, they met near Nottingham at an Irish social, so it doesn't really get any more stereotypical than that. Um, but it was they, they hit it off, and uh, as a result, then you know my father was born in Britain. Um, he they would have returned to Ireland then when he was about two years old. Um, they've a wealth of stories of their time over there as well. They really enjoyed it, and I suppose like many, it was a tough decision to make if they wanted to come home, but. They wanted the support of, of like the family network to especially to help with as, as the children were coming along as well so their parents and grandparents um so they decided to move back and they've lived in county carlo ever since um in particular my granddad tells me some wonderful stories of his time there um he's 80 now and he was saying that in the in i think the very early 1960s while he was working there he arrived off the ferry having never left galway really he got the train over to Dublin, took the ferry across um, to Britain and started working in construction because he had a cousin who was already over there. Uh, he didn't speak any English when he arrived, coming from the Gael Talked in, in Connemara. So he had to learn as he went. Um, he used to, obviously, he was, he was quite um, a devout Catholic as well. So he used to go to Mass, but he would end up going to Polish Mass instead because he said he could pick up a couple more words there than he could from, from the English alternative, which I always found quite funny. Um, he used to go to confession then once a week with the Polish priest, but neither of them had a clue what the other was saying to each other. So they went through the motions. He said it was fantastic. It was like, you could say whatever you want and you still got absolved. It didn't matter and nobody was aware of it. So he, he loved that. Um, he was digging a trench, I think, um, as part of roadworks outside Nottingham at one point and uh, another workman stepped on his boot and he started giving out to him and the two of them started kind of squaring up to each other. They started fighting, tearing lumps out of each other in this trench until they realised like a few minutes in that they were both shouting at each other in Irish. They were both from Connemara and it turned out it was actually his cousin that he hadn't seen in 20 years. So uh, they ended up going home. He brought him home for dinner. He stayed for two nights. So my granny said, yeah, he, he, she went right back one day and the two of them were sitting in the kitchen. So you couldn't make it up, really. They talked about Psycho and what the difference was maybe between Psycho going out and coming back, or was it really not that big a deal? Yeah, so there was, you know, it was a big decision um, for them to make as well. Going out as well, just just even getting the money to go in the first place and to get set up, you know, you really relied on that kind of community support network, extended family, whatever you could manage, and to get a skill to to be able to train. So my, my grandmother would have trained in Dublin initially before she was able to to move to Britain. And they wouldn't take you without either that recommendation from from uh, a peer group here in Ireland or a kind of a family tie abroad. Slightly different when you're working in construction because it was really, you know, you, you might get a start and then it was up to you to prove yourself. So that my granddad, maybe he had a little bit of an easier time there. They always tell the story that one of the reasons people, even if you were just after arriving, what you do is you go rub muck on your boots because if the guys pulled up uh, to pick workers for the day and they saw you had nice, clean, shiny boots, they didn't think you were worth anything. So they wouldn't get you. You know, there could be 20 guys waiting there and they only want seven. So, you know, you try to make yourself look like a veteran. This is a, quite, a, quite an interesting little thing. Um, yeah, but then moving back was a big decision because... You know, they've kind of built a life up for themselves. They'd met, they'd married, um, they they were starting their family. They were, and they had a house. They they bought a house in Nottingham as well. So, they were deciding. You know, okay, well, do we? If we we need, it's now or never. We need to decide: are we staying or are we going? And it was really a visit from my grandmother's mother, um, that convinced them to return to Ireland. She said, basically, do you want to bring up all your children here, um, or do you want to come home and you know you'll have help from 
from everybody. And it was the support network, I think, that really won them over in the end. It was getting back and getting, you know, help with the children, getting, you know, having someone to rely on. And that's what brought them back. And they were given the choice. Did they want to go back to Galway, to Connemara? Did they want to go to Carlow? Um, they opted for Carlow because my granny decided that there was no way in hell she was living in Connemara. Um, so that she put her foot down. My granddad's the eldest son, so he was due to inherit a little farm of like 20 or 30 acres. But as she said, yeah, it's 20 or 30 acres, of which like 25 is just rock. So she wasn't going to be a, a farmer's wife in Connemara. And that's, that's, so they've been in Carlo now ever since. They've been there for 50 years now. Brilliant. And what about your parents? Yes. Yeah, so my, my dad then, obviously, he grew up in Carlo, and that's uh, all my father's side then. Um, are basically and all his siblings then he would have been born in Britain but the rest of them would have been born um, in Ireland in Carlow and then my mother's side are from Kilkenny so not only down the road in, in Irish terms you know half an hour 35 minutes away um, and they met because my dad ended up joining the army when he was quite young he became a joined the Irish army he served with the uh, peacekeepers in Lebanon for a couple of years as well and the barracks is based in Kilkenny James Stevens there isn't any in Carlow so they met on a on a night out in in Kilkenny, you know, sort of wild soldiers. My mom at the time was a hairdresser, so it was a it was a, um, quite cool to to go out with the soldiers on a night out as well. So they were all quite young; they were eighteen or nineteen at that time. Um, yeah, and my mother's side, plenty of them ended up moving to Britain as well. Actually, my great grandmother um, was from London. Uh, she was a sharp, so she ended up um she was the only child of a it was the head groomsman to a neighbor of the queen mother which was quite an interesting one so he looked after the horses basically um and he had one daughter and she went completely so he would have been involved kind of with the aristocracy she went completely against the grain and she ended up marrying a member of the uh, IRA at the time in Ireland so the kind of movement for the war of independence and at the time in the 1920s um so uh, who was from uh, County Offaly. So she moved, ended up moving to Ireland, marrying him, uh, completely kind of breaking with her father, who did come round in later years. Um, he remarried as well. Her mother had died. So um, he would visit then once or twice a year and he'd come over. Um, and eventually, yeah, they kind of made peace. After, uh, gave, it, gave it a few years, they made peace. It was quite a clash. Yeah, it was a little bit of a cultural shock, all right. The slightly, slightly well-to-do kind of English, English kind of uh, family marrying into uh, a very, a very at the time, very Republican Irish nationalists family. And also the, around the other, other other way as well, a, a mm. Republican family taking on somebody who is obviously sort of very very connected to the to the to the English establishment. Yeah, well, they they found it like they basically they were they fell in love. It's it's that story. She they had family um, in Ireland, and my great granny would have come over and visited them for the summer every now and then to get out of London. And it was there that she ended up meeting uh, my great grandfather, um, and obviously a, definitely a forbidden romance, but. Um, when it came to make or break, she decided that she preferred to stay with him and make her life in Ireland than to, to go back. So, yeah, and as a very turbulent time, as you can imagine, you know, with, with the War of Independence just after ending and the, uh, the uh, Irish Civil War that followed, um, he ended up in the army then after the war. He became an officer with the, with the Irish Free State Army um, and uh, ended up um, based in Kilkenny, which is how they ended up 
being uh, being brought there in the end as well. Actually, this this this, this brings to mind, um, uh, you know, particularly with regards to, to emigration and the and, and the fraught history between 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 Britain and Ireland and so forth. That an awful lot of members of the uh, of the diaspora, particularly over the course of the seventies and eighties, when um, when when the bombing campaign on the mainland, as they call it, was was at its full height, would have had distinct distinct problems in like in just like either either like claiming their Irish roots or or, in, or indeed sort of feeling as though they could actually fit into the countries that they the country that they've gone across to yes no that was certainly certainly an issue um you know not that luckily things have improved since then but there was um you know there was profiling people just based on their accent um at the time in Britain but I think that sort of like hyphenated identity as well is something that's still very central to Irishness here and in, and in Northern Ireland. Um, one of the stories that we feature at the museum is of Anne Carey. So she would have been, and Anne is still alive today, um, an Irish emigrant from Belfast who ended up moving to Canada um, at the height of the Troubles because she had basically recently married as well. Um, and then she had found out that a neighbor of hers burst in the door saying that um, a man with the same name as her husband had been killed. Um, she assumed it was him and they rushed out later to find out luckily it, luckily for her but not for the others it wasn't her husband it was it was another man with the same name who had been killed but she decided that you know it was just too difficult a place to bring up their children as well when they were starting their family so both of them left Belfast and moved to Canada brought up their family there um, her husband only passed away a couple of years ago but she her story is one of, of 330 that are told within the museum so the idea that you know, one of the things that people forget is while the, the troubles, you know, were centralized in Northern Ireland and, and the UK mainland as well, um, they also had a global impact. So lots of people, I think thousands and thousands of people left Northern Ireland during the height of the troubles as well, um, with the hope of a peaceful life somewhere else. So should they would have settled in Toronto, became involved with the with the uh, Canadian hockey as, as a sport. So it shows you like how things can change. The children are really into hockey. Um, one of them worked at an Irish bar. So they, you know, they're Irish, but they also have, they consider themselves kind of true Canadians. And the sort of like nuanced changes that came about as a result of these, this type of immigration is something that's kind of understudied um, and not as well known, I think. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. If you're new to The Plastic Podcasts, or even if you're not and you haven't got round to it, why not subscribe? Simply go to the homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com, scroll to the bottom and place your email address in the space provided. One confirmatory click later and you'll be getting details of each fresh podcast plus a collection of personal thoughts on the interview from yours truly. What more could you possibly want for free? We'll be back with Nathan Mannion in a moment. But first, it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my interviewees to raise up a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance to them. This week, Rosemary Addisa, with a particular favourite, Edna O'Brien. She's the one. She's the one, because she was... I, I remember... Hers was a book that was absolutely forbidden in the institutions. And one of the girls in this industrial school got her hands on this book and this book went around the houses at least 100 girls read this book and it was absolutely forbidden um the nuns eventually found it and did a, a ritual burning of the book uh but what i loved about her was um the honesty that she showed in that book she, you know she she wrote about 
local girls, absolutely clueless about anything to do with life. And I absolutely identified with that. So yeah, if there was one, Frank McCourt would be another, but um, the authors of Country Girls, absolutely, she stayed in my mind over 40 years later. I don't think I have found an, um, another person since that I would say, God, I'd, I'd die to meet you. I, I don't think, you know, yeah, definitely her. Rosemary Addison there. And if you want to hear more of Rosemary's interview, and frankly, you'd be a fool not to, simply go to the episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com, where you can find the archive of not just her, but of all of our interviewees. Or indeed, you can find them on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Now back to Nathan Mannion. And I ask him about what a museum like Epic offers to the present, and indeed the future. We also get to talk some favourite stories. In the last four years, the idea of what is the museum and how should, what should a museum do and what the museums represent to people has changed a lot. And over the last couple of years, within the museum community, there is uh, the largest group of museum practitioners in the world is called ICOM. It's the International Council of Museums. They have a branch in every country in the world. Um, they're part of, kind of the United Nations as well under UNESCO. And I've been involved with the with the Ireland Committee here. They've been trying to grapple with what does it mean? What is a museum? They've been trying to redefine what a museum is. So every periodically, maybe every 10 or 15 years, they try to come up with a new definition of what museums are. Um, and it's been quite contentious for the last couple of years. There's been uh, a lot of disagreement. It was supposed to be decided last year. Um, a new definition was put forward, a vote of every three years, the entire kind of global body meet. They met in Kyoto in Japan last year. They were meant to adopt it. It didn't pass. So they've gone back to the drawing board there. Um, so it really shows you like, you know, you have 20,000 museum practitioners in this group trying to get a consensus on what a museum actually is or should do isn't easy. Um, it changes depending on where you are in the world, how you relate with your local community, um, how they relate with you what you perceive your mission to be versus what it might be. Um, and, you know, if it's just as simple as a dictionary definition or a, a space that, you know, hosts exhibitions, preserves and collects objects um, and safeguards them for the future, or is it one that needs to, you know, actively engage in like the spread of democracy? It needs to, you know, co-produce with those communities rather than dictate to them. Um, that needs to go beyond the kind of walls of the physical institution and do much more than just be a space. Um, so it's still ongoing, but it's been it's been fascinating following it all. And you mentioned that um, you uh, have had a kind of digital presence, particularly um, in the last six months or so, because of because of uh, because of COVID and so on. And has that changed the way that museums are perceived? And has, has does that definition then come under even under yet another form of scrutiny? Because now we're no longer looking at a physical space necessarily. Absolutely. Um, I think that's been one of the most interesting things. Like in our own circumstances, we've been through two lockdowns now at this stage. Um, the first began in March. Um, we were open then briefly for a few weeks there in the summer, and then we, we closed again until last week. Um, so we had to move a lot of our activity online, which we were doing a little bit of already, but we, you know, like everybody else, we had to speed it up, get online, start giving, you know, lectures on Zoom, start doing children's workshops online. We started to produce and make all of our education packs available for download. We started creating a kind of museum at home hub. We started some story collecting projects as well. Um, and that's been brilliant because we got huge engagement um, and still have. Um, for us in particular, unlike I guess a lot of other museums, 
the value of being online has been that we've been able to directly engage with the diaspora and the Irish immigrant communities around the world who couldn't really walk through the doors and attend a lecture in our, our lecture space at the museum, but could definitely take part in something that's up on Zoom. So we've seen, you know, we'd, an average lecture might have 40 or 50 people. The ones that we've done online have been hundreds. You know, we had three or 400 in the first of a new series we launched on the hidden histories of the Irish abroad. Stayed strong since then. So we've had people from all over the world join in. We've partnered with groups in South Africa, groups in North America, and the time difference has actually been relatively minimal. We thought that might have an impact. It didn't really. Um, and they've been coming and they've been really happy that they've been able to. So it's something we'll keep doing. We're not going to stop even when the with the doors reopen now and the ability to hold smaller on-site lectures. We're going to keep streaming them, making them available. And the recordings then of those are all up online on our YouTube channel as well. So it's great. One of our most popular series at the minute um, is the Hidden Histories of the Irish Abroad. Um, so they look at kind of lesser and well-known stories of Irish communities outside of Ireland. So the first was on the Irish in the USSR. So it looked at Irish emigrants living in the Soviet Union um, throughout the 20th century and their involvement in, in the state, their involvement in understandings of Irishness um, in, in the Soviet Union at the time. That was immensely popular. Um, we've looked at the Ireland and the Black Atlantic was our second talk. So it looked at parallels between movements in Ireland for independence and civil rights in, in, in North America. It looked at the all the, all the legacy of, of transatlantic slavery as well. And it looked at the uh, more recent mixed race communities in North America. So we did that in partnership with Aiden, which is the African-American Irish Diaspora Association. So groups of, of um, African-American Irish people that live in North America, uh, a lesser well-known part of our diaspora. Um, but an interesting statistic that they shared with us during that, during that talk was that one in three African-Americans have Irish ancestry. Now, in most cases, you know, that's a very dark story, um, you know, going back to plantations, uh, slave owners, um, and potentially forced relationships. But it's something that they're grappling with today, and they're trying to connect a lot of that community with their connections to Ireland. So it's, a, it's an area that a lot of work has been put into, um, and hopefully we will have a forthcoming exhibition um, in 2022, which will look at that in more depth. It was a very popular talk. Um, and an area that is less well studied than it should be. So that was very popular. Our next one will be on the Irish behind bars. Um, so it's looking at Irish people incarcerated all around the world, um, mainly looking at those who are, who are civil protesters or activists that have, have been locked up um, over the centuries and, and up to the recent day as well. We'll be bringing the start of our 2021 programme. We'll look at Irish Jewish and Irish Jewish diasporas and the parallels and links between them. Um, we're looking at Irish travellers abroad as well. So the Irish traveller community, mainly in the United States and places like Georgia, but also in the UK and elsewhere. Um, and then we're going to look at contemporary migration. So the impact of immigration to Ireland as well and new Irish communities and how that has in turn influenced our diaspora um, and immigrant policies and communities in Ireland. So it's, it's quite diverse. It's, it's a very popular program and uh, go online to our website, anybody who wants to take a look, it's, it's uh, epicchq.com and it'll outline most of the upcoming talks. So. One of the things that, um, that, that, that struck me when I went around um, Epic um, was the enthusiasm of, um, of, of, of the staff there. I think we were looking at the, uh, the World War II section uh, and uh, and a gentleman whose name I forget um, just I went 
oh, have you heard this story and this story and this story? And so we, we, we started talking about um, uh, Spitfire Paddy, I think it was. Yes, a lot of people, they want to speak to, they want the human connection. They want to talk to somebody that works there. So that's why there's staff in every gallery as you move around. Um, they can add more depth to the stories as well. So as we mentioned, space is limited. You can, well, I'm, I've given... I've been given and set strict word counts for each entry that we can we can work with. Um, it's just to keep me in line as well in many ways, so you don't have a whole story there. But every pe people want to know more. So like like your experience where you engage with the stories Bitfire Paddy, and the staff are there to give you more information, um, to direct you to new resources as well. If you want to find a book on the topic, you want to come and read some of the archival material, whatever it might be. Um, and they share their own stories as well. You know, they have their own favorites as you go throughout the museum. Every staff member kind of find, feels drawn to different parts of the exhibition, or maybe it links to their own experience. So that's always been um, really popular. And the feedback that we get at the end of the museum, one of the sections is about the staff, and it's, it's universally, universally praised. So all the staff throughout the museum and in the shop. Now then, um, I've already introduced the notion of Spitfire Paddy, so I suppose it's probably only right and apt to, um, to tell the story. Yeah, so I think I'm not surprised that you were drawn to that one. It's it is fascinating um, for anyone that knows. So Spitfire Paddy would have been would have been an alias. His 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 real name was Brendan Finucane, um, and he was uh, born in Ratmines in County Dublin in 1920. Um, his family uh, moved to to Britain when he was quite young as well. He he attended school there, but he was fascinated with with flight and with potential potentially being a pilot from a young age you know obviously at that time you know it's only 20 years since the, the first airplane took off um so it's a still it was still a relatively new new invention um his father didn't want him to be a pilot he encouraged him to become an accountant um he tried it for a little while after he finished school he hated it absolutely hated it so he decided to try and follow his dream and become a pilot he at the age of 17 he Took a, he began a four-year course um, to train as a pilot. By all intents and purposes, all the reports of it, he was terrible. He was a he was an atrocious he was an atrocious pilot. Um, he was involved in a number of different accidents when he was trying to to take off. Um, and when he sat his written exams in in an advanced flying school in Scotland, uh, he scored very poorly. Um, and to be honest, had the Second World War not broken out, he probably wouldn't have been. Uh, accepted into the Royal Air Force at all. So that just shows if you persevere and you try hard enough and the right circumstances come along, maybe you can still achieve your dream. He racked up over 100 hours flight time as well. Um, but actually, once he once he took to the skies um, during what was a, a very tense time for anybody living in Britain, he actually became, it, it became very obvious that he was a natural. So he, became, he was a natural pilot. And more so than that, he was also kind of a natural, natural leader. Um, he aimed the he need, he earned the moniker Spitfire Paddy uh, because he used to obviously he was from Ireland but he used to paint a um, shamrock on the tail end of his cockpit of his Spitfire of his Supermean Spitfire and his unit were known as the Flying Shamrocks so he actually rose through the ranks as well throughout his brief career um, by 1942 he had earned the rank of Wing Commander which would be the equivalent of a Lieutenant Colonel. In the, in the armed forces, the youngest RAF wing commander in their history, still to this day at 21 years of age, um, which really could only take, only happen during, during a, a kind of global crisis like the Second World War. Um, sadly, he was shot down as well, uh, only a month after his promotion in coming back from a sortie over France. He, 
his plane was damaged and he attempted to do a, a kind of a crash landing in the English Channel, um, which didn't go to plan and he was lost that day. Um, but to this day as well, at the time he was considered quite a hero um, in Britain. He appeared regularly in all the British papers. He received awards at Buckingham Palace. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross um, two, with two bars and a Distinguished Service Order as well. And uh, was a kind of a propagandic icon in a way because they wanted to show that, you know, anybody could could get behind um, the the war effort and achieve great things. You needed to achieve, I think, five aerial aerial kills to be given the moniker of aerial ace. Um, and I think he, depending on the source you refer to, he has twenty eight confirmed kills, up to thirty two, depending on the sources for probable. So his career as a, as a as a pilot and a fighter pilot during the time is is very impressive obviously as a as a senior curator you're you're kind of like a father with 330 children um uh, i suppose it's wrong to have favorites but inevitably you may well have some um if you were just a visitor to the uh, to the to the museum what do you think would be the standout things for you Oh, I think it, it varies. And really, a personal taste dictates that so much. But there are some remarkable stories that a lot of people are generally drawn to. Um, one that I always find quite interesting, um, just because it's a little bit uh, quirky, is the story of Margaret Eager. Um, so she was from Limerick, um, but she was nanny to the last Tsar of Russia, the last Tsar of Russia's children. So his four daughters, the Grand Duchesses um, of Russia. She was their English tutor at the Russian court for six years. And she taught them, she taught them English. And they, they actually remained quite close even after she left. Um, she ended up opening a boarding house in England. And she used to correspond with them by letters quite a lot. And she even wrote a book about her time there. <clears throat> but one of the things that people are really drawn to is the fact that when they spoke English, they spoke it with a Limerick accent, which you can imagine as the, the senior royal family of Russia, um, appalled the Tsar and his wife so they ended up having to fly somebody in from England to, to teach them proper Queen's English but for a, for a period there you can imagine the, the royals of Russia speaking with a, with a limerick twang would have been quite something The O-Romanovs Yes, yeah <laughs> Those perhaps, yeah You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts We all come from somewhere else that's more than just a hashtag, it's a philosophy. One of the things that struck me most as part of my visit to Epic was its layout and design. In particular, a series of walls with a selection of Sergeant Pepper-style montages of the diaspora. One face that particularly caught my eye was a stern-looking Eamon Andrews. It was a display I could get lost in for days, and so in this last section of my interview with Nathan Mannion, we start by talking about that, and then frankly, we move on to all sorts. The gallery you're thinking of is the Influence Gallery. So it's the beginning of the of the section that look at kind of Irish impact around the world. Um, that particular space kind of shows kind of iconic moments that brought Irish people abroad and at home closer together. So you know, you know, where were you when? And it's like the Italia '90. It's the first Eurovision win on one side, and then on the other, it's it's you know things like IRA bombings um, and uh, you know the 9/11 attacks. So it's a sort of a good and the bad. But the space that you're thinking of, that collage, it, it shows um, a, a good number of the people that are featured within the museum kind of interspersed among a crowd. And the idea is that each of them is holding or, or next to something that's linked to their story in some way. A um, little bit humorous in most cases. So you'll find 
Um, JFK is having a cup of tea in a little chair because when he came to Ireland, he had a cup of tea with his relations down in Wexford. Um, you know, WB Yeats is sitting there holding poetry for dummies. Um, the, the Peter Rice, a renowned architect who did, who was the engineer of the Sydney Opera House, is holding the blueprints there, and that kind of thing. But it's kind of can you spot and how many names and faces can you recognise? <clears throat> but it definitely does connect. There is something there for all generations of visitors. And like Eamon Andrews, the people people appreciate it, you know. Um, and anyone they see there, they will be able to find their story elsewhere in the museum as well. So the idea is to kind of encourage you to look a little further and a little bit deeper. Um, one of, one of my favourites from that sort of era as well is um, Dave Allen. I think he's featured in our, our comedy section among many others um, who made their made their name in Britain, like Sadaro Breen. Um, but I think Alan is is fantastic, and even today, some of his some of his quotes and interviews about what it means to be Irish um, abroad are still relevant, um, still quite telling. And uh, you know, I think him and the likes of Eamon Andrews really started to kind of change how Irishness was perceived in Britain in many ways. When you see it on TV, Wogan obviously went on to do that himself. Then a little bit later on, but you find it was the and now even today, people like Graham Norton as well. Like Ireland has contributed a lot to kind of. Um, TV show hosts, um, late night TV and so on in, in, in the UK. And they definitely have an impact on how Irishness and what it means to be Irish is perceived. And they have a platform and a voice that, you know, many other groups don't. So I think even today that that's still quite strong. There's something that you, you mentioned there that, um, that, that was, that, that uh, stuck out. And that was that you talk about, there's a wall there that's got 9-11 and, and, and uh, IRA bombings and so forth. And it's tr trying to look at that, there's a darker side to the, the, the diaspora history as well and so on. I mean, as we talk about Spitfire Paddy, there's also the story of uh, William Joyce, uh, Lord Haw Haw, who it's like, uh, ended up broadcasting radio propaganda for the Nazis and, and, and so on. And it was, um, is it something that you try and steer away from or you do have to acknowledge it? What's, what, what's the feeling of balance here when it comes to actually having to deal with some of the, some of the stories that aren't necessarily the most positive that you can have? No, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge both sides because, you know, the experience isn't universally positive, nor is it universally negative. We, we would lean slight, slightly positive um, within the exhibition. We like to leave people on a high. But throughout the rest of the museum, yeah, there are quite dark stories. You know, things like the modern baby homes in Ireland, the Magdalene laundries, um, the persecution of members of the LGBT community up until the 1990s. It, it was a criminal act in Ireland, 1994. Um, and these were all causes for migration, people who were either voluntary or involuntarily um, taken from Ireland and sent abroad. Um, and they're important parts of, of our history as well. And then similarly, Irish people who have gone abroad, um, not all of them were, were, were saints, and quite a number of them were sinners as well. Um, and you need to acknowledge that. So there were Irish people involved in criminality around the world. Um, you know, some are polarizing figures as well. You know, obviously Che Guevara has Irish ancestry as well. And that people come in one way or the other on, on, on his legacy. Um, Ned Kelly as well. Obviously, he's a romantic kind of bush ranger figure in, in Australian folklore at this stage. But for many people, also, he was just a, a dangerous, a dangerous thief and robber. Um, and people then like Haha as well and Joyce, you know, who's again, is actually buried in Ireland today. He's still buried in Galway and in, um, I had the opportunity when I did my undergrad in Galway. Like his grave is still there. Um, you can go and see it and everything. But how their legacy is handled is quite important. And I think that's one of the things that museums do is that they create a platform and a space for conversations. Like 
we, we aren't an authoritative source on, on every aspect of the past, but what we do is we want to start those conversations. You know, it had to be a space where these stories can be shared and interpreted, and then people can come and they can engage with them and make up their own minds. Um, and I think that's really important, especially today where you can find it very difficult um, to find a, a kind of a, almost a, like a safe space to have these conversations because, you know, they are quite polarizing generally. And I find that through bringing to light stories that maybe are lesser well known, like like the impact of the Irish involvement in the transatlantic slave trade or, you know, difficult legacies around colonial pasts that we have today. Museums are all grappling with these issues all over the world, um, but they need to they need to acknowledge them, they need to engage them, and they need to listen to the people whose voices are being raised. So we, when we're currently working on an exhibition that will focus on Ireland's LGBT diaspora around the world and their experiences, it's, it's co-produced, it's done with the communities. You directly link, you link in with them all, you, you find the kind of community experts, you talk to the people themselves whose experiences you're trying to portray, and you get their side of the story, because for too long, I think there was a sort of an authoritative-driven um, curation of museums where you become a subject expert in a particular area and then you just create an exhibition based on your own research or resources and that was it and it wasn't done it could be done about someone but never with them and I think museums have been moving into that space a lot more um, over the last decade or so and it's really just become something you just it's not defensible anymore you have to work with people to tell their stories and that's just the way it has to be that leads me neatly onto a, a question that, uh, that that's that also sprung up there which is that there are other issues that that that, that, that arise where um say uh mixed race uh, irish or uh, or travelers within ireland themselves mm. and um feel that they're underrepresented and so on do you think that that museums have a part to play in in, in that oh no absolutely um museums again are spaces where if you're a national museum or a local museum, <clears throat> people consider you custodians of that local story or that national story, and you construct identity in what you choose to display and what you don't. If people don't see themselves in an exhibition, they don't feel part of that story. Um, and that's something that people have recognized now. I mean, it's been said for decades, but it's something that people are starting to take seriously now and they're starting to engage. Like if Ireland is a very different place today than it was a century ago, and those stories that have come along since then need to be represented. So if you're an immigrant to Ireland, you're a member of the traveling community, and you've never seen your story on display in a museum, you know, you feel almost like a second-class citizen in a sense. So the, there's been a lot of work and here at Epic as well and elsewhere to make sure that those stories are incorporated because they, they're part of our national story, they're part of our diasporic experience, whether you like it or not, they are part of that narrative. Um, and if they're not represented, you're not really telling a complete story. It's, it's it's the elimination of that kind of whether conscious or unconscious bias that I think museums really are striving to remedy and then that becomes a platform for broader discussion in society as well because once people are aware of a story <clears throat> they'll start to start to interpret it, start to engage with it and start to bring that conversation along a bit further. You say that Ireland's changed, do you think that the perception of the diaspora as far as the Irish are concerned have changed? Oh yeah, most certainly. I think, you know, Ireland has come a long way in the last couple of decades as, as a country. As I mentioned earlier, one of the galleries at the museum is being redeveloped at the moment, launched in about six weeks time. Um, and that's bringing in insulation on contemporary migration. So it's looking at the 19th century experience of Irish people abroad, um, true personal stories and what that was like. But it's juxtaposing it against contemporary migration from Ireland as well. And actually 
one the contemporary story we're looking at is that of Emma Debiri. So obviously, a Nigerian Irish woman currently living in the UK. So her story is is a little bit more nuanced in how we connect with our Irishness. So that the installation looks at things like you know the change in communication methods that we've had over that time period. So from kind of letter writing to the internet and smartphones, from travel by sea and ship on probably a one way journey to frequent return migration by air. From anywhere in the world and then how we connect with irishness so what does it mean to be irish and who who decides that and how is it interpreted in the world today so is it people that connect with irish culture is it people that were born on the island of ireland is it people of irish parentage grandparentage um is it people who have no irish ancestry whatsoever but a huge affinity with what it means to be irish maybe they went to school here maybe they you know they did part of a year abroad or you know they're they only read irish literature it's the kind of of Ireland, um, of Ireland, and and for Ireland, so it's just, it's it's changed quite a lot, and it's the called I think the Department of Foreign Affairs have been calling it the Affinity Irish people who aren't from Ireland or haven't got a connection to Ireland, but love the place, engage with all of our you know our music, our literature, visit it frequently, um, and then immigrant communities to Ireland as well, and their interpretation of what it means to be Irish because it's. It's 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 a hyphenated identity in some senses. People are like we're much more diverse and multicultural society than we were um, even 30 years ago, and it's time that kind of that notion of what it means to be Irish evolved. It's evolving here, um, and then the diaspora as well. Like for a long time, Ireland didn't acknowledge its diaspora, even though they did so much for us. You know the the remittances alone that were sent back by Irish immigrants all over the world kept the economy afloat for decades, um, just from an economic perspective. And you know, I think I think it was Eamon de Valera who had mentioned that there was there was there was plenty of employment in Ireland, and those that left were you know giving up on the kind of national ideal. Um, that was more of a political stance because, from an economic reality, it wasn't viable. Um, but they, as I said, they now we have now have a minister of state for the diaspora. We have diaspora policies. We have a diaspora museum. Um, people are getting much more aware of that story and Ireland is unique in that it's the only country in Western Europe that has a smaller population today than it did at the middle of the 19th century that's in the wake of the Great Irish Famine but we have one of the largest diasporas in the world um, which is again partly to do with that um, and how we link in you know if 70 to 80 million people is one percent of the world's population today that have an affinity for an island that you know has you know, just about 7 million people on it. So it's, it's, it's crazy. It's at least 10 times the size of what um, the population is today. So I think it's a, if we don't acknowledge it, it's, it's ridiculous. One final question. Under normal circumstances, I'd, I'd ask my, my interviewee, what does being a member of the diaspora mean to you? But although you've got, um, you, you're, you've got a diaspora background, you were born and raised in Ireland. So I'm going to ask it in a slightly different way, which is um, over the course of the four years that you've been with Epic, what has Epic meant to you? It's a, it's a big question. I think it's meant, a, it's meant quite a lot to me, um, mostly because... I can see the stories of people of my own family represented in the museum, but I can also see the stories of people that are nothing like me represented in the museum. You know, stories that I would never have come across if I hadn't been involved with this project or if I hadn't worked here. And it's the people that come through the doors as well, because migration is special, because many museums are dedicated to historical events and things from the past, but with migration, it's both historic and contemporary. So anyone that walks into the door can share a story that may end up on display in the museum. And that'll be the case moving into the future as well. Migration is never going to stop. It's a universal part of our identity and a place where that can be 
told and where those stories can be displayed is, is really important. Until Epic Open, it didn't exist. Um, and we've just seen the overwhelming support and positivity from anyone who's come in about what we do and what we continue to do into the future that I think without it, I'd be a different person because I wouldn't have met so many extraordinary people. I wouldn't have been able to engage in so many fun and interesting projects. And I I've definitely, um, I'd be a different person myself. So I could be, I could be a banker, which, you know, I'm glad my, my uh, story took a different route, but I think, yeah, the importance of, of that global identity and, and being able to share it with so many hundreds of thousands of people every year uh, from all over the world is, is phenomenal. And I think it's something that's quite special and long overdue in Ireland. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Nathan Mannion. The Plastic Pedestal was raised by Rosemary Addiser, music by Jack Devaney. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com or email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts is sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.